Amen. Good evening, church. Welcome to service this evening. Will you bow with me for a word of prayer tonight before we get started, please? Lord, let's, uh, we just praise you. We thank you. Uh, and we honor you tonight as we hear from you, Lord. Let us pray that um, you would our, open our eyes, our hearts uh, to hear the word uh, that you have for us tonight, Lord. And just uh, bless each one that is here. Father, thank you for once again allowing us to gather in your house. Thank you for the songs that we have heard. Lord, I hope you are truly magnified and glorified here tonight. Uh, and Lord, more than anything, just help us hear from you. Help us hear your voice as we read your word and to do what it says. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm uh, Pastor Ryan. Pastor Mike is out. He, uh, him and his, he's with family in Oklahoma. They're, they're finalizing the barrel of his mother, so just continue to be in prayer for him and Pat as they're doing that. Um, but just wanted to welcome you tonight. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful day. It's just, this is the kind of weather that I, I really, really love when you can finally, you know, go check your mail without sweating um, and coming back with a few mosquito bites. It's always a good thing. So I, I love this, this turn of season that we're going through. It'll be, I think, in the 40s in the morning, so I'm, I'm really excited about that. So um, but glad that you're here. Those who are joining us online, Facebook or YouTube, glad that, that you're there as well. I hope you're blessed. Uh, there is a sheet for tonight. If you, if you have this, it's, there's one they're up here on this, um, this stand in front of the, the camera. Um, so I did, did prepare that for you all tonight. Uh, it has some blanks on it because I know, I know middle of the week, hump day, how tired we can all get. And, um, so just to keep you interested throughout the night there's there's blanks that you'll have to to fill in if you really want to get the whole notes from this evening so um, but we're going to be if you'll open your copy of God's word we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11 Matthew chapter 11 we're going to be just examining um, about five or six verses tonight 25 through 30 Matthew 11 25 through 30 and um, before we read that, though, I kind of wanted to give context to the whole chapter here, Matthew 11, the whole chapter. Um, if, you, if you know at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and well, really before um, the angel prophesied to Mary that she would give birth to Jesus, an angel appeared to the, the uh, priest Zechariah, uh, who uh, he was going to have a son with his wife, name him, and was to name him John. And we know that in the beginning of the chapter, uh, in, in the beginning of the book of John, the gospel of John, that we're introduced to this, this prophet, this son of this priest, who was indeed born to Elizabeth, um, cousin of uh, Mary, um, and was born before Jesus was born, and whose ministry began before the ministry of Jesus. So we're introduced to this prophet at, in the early um, pages of the Gospel of John and in other places in the Gospels too. Um, he's, he's a character unique in all of Scripture. There's nobody like John the Baptist, and Jesus would even say that about him. He was a lone prophet, um, silent for 400 years. We know that when Malachi, the book, when God spoke to Malachi, the Old Testament prophet, and that, that prophecy was closed, we know that Israel entered into a period of silence. We call that the intertestamental period when the Old Testament canon was closed, and we have this new, wild, unique prophet that comes on the scene after hundreds of years of prophetic silence from God. And this man comes as a witness from God to testify about the light. This is the words of John's gospel. John said this, John, the 
apostle said this about John the Baptist. He was a witness from God to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was, long foreto- he was kind of this long-foretold herald of the coming Messiah, the forerunner of Christ is what we often refer to John the Baptist as. And we know that from other gospel accounts that John was, he was not a man pleasant to look at. He was rather wild, dressed in camel hair, probably had bits of honey and locust in his beard because that's what the Bible says his diet was. Um, but more than his appearance, it was his message that really alarmed some and drew others to him. He, his was a message of repentance, a message of repentance. The kingdom of God was drawing near. John said, prepare your hearts, turn from your sin. The one who God said is coming is coming. He's soon. So the priests and the Levites were sent to ask John the Baptist, go look at this wild prophet and say, who are you? This is John chapter 1, verse 19. The, the priests and the Levites go to him and say, who are you? And his answer was that he was the one that Isaiah had foretold them about. I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way or the path of the Lord. That's John 1, 23. So when he finally met the one that he, would, he had been preaching about, that he had been telling people about, he declared Jesus was the one. He was the Messiah. In John chapter 1, verse 36, John the Baptist would see Jesus. He would direct people's gaze towards him, and he would say, Look, the Lamb of God. And this same prophet that we encounter again in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist, he's now in jail, by the way. He would soon um, have his head separated from the rest of his body um, by Herod for speaking out against a, an improper marriage that he had. So they had him thrown in jail, um, and he's awaiting execution at this point in Matthew 11. But he'd heard all the things that Jesus had been doing, and the miracles of healing the sick, all the signs, all the wonders. And maybe, maybe the loneliness of prison had made him have a hint of doubt. Maybe he just needed to be reassured because he knew his life was coming to an end. But John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus... In Matthew eleven three, and he asked, asked to ask Jesus, "Are you the one who is to come?" Let's think about that sentence, that question. John the Baptist, who spent his his ministry preaching, Jesus is the one who was to come. Sent his disciples to ask Jesus, "Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else?" But Jesus, instead of answering directly, he pointed to what he had done. He pointed to uh, the events, the miracles, the signs. He said, tell John the Baptist, the blind see, the lame walk, those with skin diseases are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and more astonishing than any of those, the poor are told the good news. In other words, the kingdom has arrived. Jesus is the king, and with his coming, the kingdom has arrived. And this message of repent for the kingdom is drawing near has come near. John the Baptist's ministry, his message, was fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Brokenness was being healed, the curse was being turned back, and the gospel was being proclaimed. I think out of all these things, Jesus lists all these miracles. Blind people are seeing, and deaf people are hearing, and people who were dead are being raised. And then he concludes that list with this miracle, the poor hear the good news. The gospel is going forth to people, and people... Some of them are responding in salvation and trusting Christ as their Messiah. 
Jesus then praises John the Baptist. He turns, uh, then he turns on these towns. All these miracles were done in, and he turns on them. These are in, this is in Matthew eleven twenty through 24. He speaks woes to these cities. He calls down curses upon these cities, rebukes their unresponsiveness. It's not that they... They, they were just, it's not that they were just unrepentant. They were, but they were unresponsive. It was like they didn't care that they had the Messiah among them. All these works had been done among them, and they were unresponsive to Jesus. And so he pronounced woes, curses on them, and told them that their judgment would be worse than that of Sodom. It's quite a rebuke from the, from the Son of God, as we all know what happened to Sodom. But nevertheless, um, some did respond to Jesus, and that's what we're going to see in verses 25 through 30. So that's what we're going to read. Do you have your copy of God's Word? We're going to read 25 through 30. So I, there, there's the context of this chapter. So that's what's leading up to this. So there's some curses that have been called down upon these places where Jesus did these miracles and these signs and these wonders, and the gospel was proclaimed. And many rejected many, especially the religious leaders, um, the priests, the scribes, were unresponsive to the message of Jesus, but some, the poor, heard the gospel, and they responded. So let's read what Jesus says next. Verse 25 says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to little children or infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I have three main points that I want to draw out from this tonight uh, for you. Uh, and I'll help you fill in your blanks as you go if you're paying attention to that. If you're like me, if you get something with a blank on it, and I, I cannot leave a room with those blanks still there. I have to fill them in. So if you're anything like me, I'll make sure you have the words that go there. So in the first blank, the son's adoration of the father. We see the son's adoration of the father in verses 25 and 26. So here in these verses, we get a glimpse of really of the glory of the Trinity. We, we don't often use that word. We don't talk about the Trinity. We think we can't wrap our heads around it. And, and in a way, it, a lot of, it is very mysterious to us how God can be three in one. But this is not a sermon about the Trinity. But what I want us to see is that we do get a glimpse here of the unity. It's a, the theological term for this is the unity of the Trinity, how God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit are unified in mission, unified in their person, unified in what they're accomplishing in redemption. Jesus the Son is praising the work of the Father. No one knows the Father like the Son does, and we'll get to that in a minute. But one commentary says about these two verses, 25 and 26, that says, Here you sense yourself treading on holy ground as you glimpse the inner workings of the Trinity. Here's Jesus praising his Father, the Holy Son praising the Father. So what is he praising the Father for? What is he praising the Father for? Well, he's praising him for the sovereign work of redemption. He's praising him specifically for his work in revealing hidden things. 
the work of the Father in revealing hidden things, particularly God's work of revealing the message of the gospel and the gift of faith given to such unlikely people, babes, infants, children, is what Jesus refers to them as in these passages. So think about this. What's unfolding in real time here in Jesus' ministry is a plan conceived of in the mind of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in eternity past, before ever a breath of creation was breathed, or a word spoken before a single star blazed in the sky, before a single blade of grass on the new creation took root and rose from the ground, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in perfect unity and agreement, planned the sending of the Son to be the Messiah and the Redeemer of all mankind. And Jesus is seeing this unfold. Jesus the Son, the eternal Son, even though He had always known about His work as Messiah, still marveled at it in real time. He marveled and praised God for what was happening for the eyes of the people that were being opened. He was overcome with joy in real time. As eyes were opened and the lame walked and the dead rose and the deaf hear, God marvels as He sees His work unfold in real time. He takes delight in seeing redemption. And we know that's true because Jesus marveled at the work and Jesus is God. So he takes delight in seeing this redemption play out, right? Of seeing the eyes of people opened, not just physically, but spiritually. People are hearing the gospel and they're turning to Jesus. And he's sharing in this excitement with the Father. So what, what is God doing? Two things specifically Jesus praises God for. The first thing, this is point A under one. In your blank there, um, God has hidden these things from the wise and the learned. So Jesus is praising God for his work of hiding things, these, this mystery of the gospel of Jesus as Messiah, these things from the wise and the learned. Now, it's, it's kind of odd that Jesus would praise God for, for hiding this mystery. The Greek word for hidden here is a word that can also be translated as to be kept secret or to conceal as to escape notice. So it, it's, this is a very intentional thing by God. He has hidden these truths, this message about the Messiah, from those who in pride would deem themselves wise and learned. Now Jesus is not declaring that they are wise or that they are learned. He's declaring that that's what they think they are. Therefore, they can't accept the message Jesus is bringing because they're too smart, they're too wise, they're too learned. They're so wise and they're so learned that they miss the Messiah right in front of them. Something so clear and so obvious. Um, they, they not only had rejected Jesus, but they were indifferent to him is what Jesus declares. It was almost, almost as if they were saying, you may or may not be the Messiah, but what difference does it make anyway? Well, it makes all the difference in the world. John the Baptist told them that he was coming, that the Messiah was coming, and now here he is. John's work is finished. Jesus' work has began. So how do they know that he is here? Because the blind... See, this, is, this is what Jesus... How do we know you are the one John says you are? How do we know that you're the Messiah? And Jesus could have just declared that to them. And in a way he did. But what he did is he pointed to the signs, right? He said, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the poor have heard the gospel. All of those being foretold signs of the Messiah... All of those being things of the way Jesus came in and he just reshaped the natural order of things. And really what he was doing is demonstrating what his kingdom was like. 
There's no blind in the kingdom of Jesus. There's no lame in the kingdom of Jesus. There's no poor, destitute, weary people in the kingdom of Jesus. We're often oblivious to things, though, too. We're, we're, we miss things that are right in front of us. Um, for instance, if my wife were to come in after a long day out um, and plop down on the couch and say, Whew, I don't know what I'm going to do for supper. I really don't feel like cooking tonight. An oblivious husband, which I would never be, but an oblivious husband would just kind of walk by and think, Man, I really hope she figures that out because I'm really hungry. It's not a very nice thing to say when your wife just declared that she pretty much doesn't want to cook that night, but an oblivious man would say that. So people in these towns, particularly the religious leaders, had the Messiah right in front of them with all the signs of Messiahship present, and they refused to believe the message. For whatever wisdom or learning they might have possessed, it really didn't do them any good uh, in recognizing Jesus when he said he was the Messiah. So he praised God for hiding these things. And the second thing he praised God for is that God has revealed them these truths to infants, what Jesus would declare as infants. While the, one, the wise ones missed it, the infants saw Jesus for who he was. So what does this say about the people who believed and about the people who did follow Jesus? Well, the Greek word used here for infant can also refer to someone who is untaught or unskilled, a simple-minded person. Uh, well, if they were so simple and immature and childlike, how did they come to understand something that the wise and the learned missed? Well, it comes down to the word revealed. The Greek word for revealed is actually apocalypto, where we transliterate that word and we get our word apocalypse from. But that word just means to uncover or to make known. So it gives the idea of something that's been covered up for a period of time, something that's been veiled and has now been, and through the ministry of Jesus, it's been revealed or it's been disclosed. Because that's what Jesus was in the ministry of. He was disclosing things that had been revealed for a period of time. That had been undisclosed for a period of time and he's disclosing them. So it's like this mysterious treasure chest that's been shut and it's been locked for a long period of time. But now Jesus comes along and it's unlocked. It's laid open. Its contents are revealed. So now two very distinct actions by God to two very different groups of people. One group it's hidden from, one group it's revealed to. The truth of Jesus as the Messiah and the message of the gospel was embraced by one group. It was shunned by the other group, all based on who it had been revealed to. One group, because of hard hearts, had shunned the works of the Messiah, so the beauty of the gospel was hidden from them. We don't want to be part of that group. That was their judgment, right? Because of their hardness of hearts, because of their rejection of the Messiah, the, the mystery of God, the beautiful, glorious mystery of the gospel was hidden from them. That was their judgment. One group, the other group, with childlike faith, trusted in the works of the Messiah, and to them was revealed the full beauty of the gospel. And that was their salvation. For one group, they got judgment. The other group, redemption. So this passage only gives us one reason why from one group it was hidden and to another group it was revealed. And Jesus says, yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. Some translations may say, yes, Father, for this was your gracious will. God delighted in revealing himself to the humble, the lowly, the unlearned, the untrained infants who had seen the works of Jesus, believed on him, and therefore trusted him 
as their Messiah. So God was sovereign over all the affairs of men. And what makes him God supremely happy is revealing himself to unworthy sinners so that they may see the beauty of his glory and that they may worship him. And ta- Paul even talks about this revealing in 1 Corinthians. Um, if you look at... Um, well, I didn't write the reference down, but it's in 1 Corinthians. I believe it's, towards the, it's in the first chapter, verses 26 through 31. I didn't write the chapter down. That's what I didn't write down. But nonetheless, I think it's 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. And it says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that, here's the purpose, why? Why does God do this? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So why does God do this? So that those who receive Christ and therefore receive salvation will have no boast in that salvation because God has revealed himself to those that the world would consider unwise. The foolish things of the world um, God has used to shame the wise. So that God gets the glory and we do not. So make no mistake about it. If, if you're here tonight and as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this passage is talking about you. Consider your calling, who you were, where you were when Christ found you. And when we consider that, we, like Jesus, would be overwhelmed too. Right? We would praise the Father for the work of revealing himself to us, such lowly sinners who do not deserve it. And we would praise God as well. So that's the son's adoration. He's praising God for his work of redemption, his work of revealing himself to the most unlikely people. And the second thing we see is the son's revelation of the father, verse 27. I won't spend a lot of time here, but um, there's a lot of good things in verse 27. It could probably be a message all in and of itself, but the son's revelation of the father. So continuing with the theme of revelation... That Jesus just said that he has revealed himself to infants. If God is pleased to reveal himself to infants, then by what means does he reveal himself? How does God make himself known? How does God do this? Jesus answers that question very clearly. So he makes three declarations. Three declarations here. First, he says, All things have been entrusted to him by the Father. And I find the word entrusted interesting in this passage. Um, some translations, like the English Standard Version, say handed over. The idea being communicated by Jesus is that all things have been delivered unto Jesus by the Father. Jesus is exercising the authority of the Father. This is, this is a wild claim if Jesus is only a man, or even just simply a prophet. God doesn't hand his authority over to anyone. But here Jesus implies that the Father has handed His authority, primarily the, primarily the authority to carry out this task of redemption, this task of salvation, to Jesus. So this is a claim of divinity by Christ. It, it isn't the only time in Matthew's Gospel that He does this. He claims this authority after the resurrection too, right? And giving the Great Commission to the disciples. He proclaims that all authority has been given to Him. 
in heaven and in earth. And it was under that authority by which he sent the first disciples, the apostles, out as witnesses. So this was a highlight throughout Jesus' ministry that he claimed to operate and he claimed to speak with divine authority as one who had divine authority. It was one of the astonishing things that set Jesus apart from the religious leaders. He taught as one who had divine authority. He wasn't just communicating a truth. Jesus was communicating his truth. He wasn't just talking about a word from God. He was talking about his very word that he had breathed out. So Jesus first here claims exclusive authority. That's the blank A under point two. Jesus claims exclusive authority with the Father. Authority only the Father has, and he has only given it to his Son. So Jesus claims this exclusive authority by which he is doing what he's doing. All things have been handed over to him by the Father. So that's the first thing. So how does God make himself known? He makes himself known by first giving his authority to his Son. Secondly, Jesus says, No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. So here Jesus is claiming an exclusive relationship with the Father. That's point B. Jesus claims an exclusive relationship with the Father. The Greek word that we translate as know appears all over the place in the Bible. Um, It appears twice in this verse, and it means to become thoroughly acquainted with or to know accurately or to know well. So Jesus is saying that the only one who really knows the Father, the only one who is acquainted with Him thoroughly, is the Son. He's claiming divinity again by describing this exclusive relationship that He, as the Divine Son, has with the Father. So Jesus was saying that many may claim to know God, and many did. Many may claim to know God, but no one knows Him like I do, because He and I are one. This also was a theme of Jesus' ministry. John chapter 10, verse 30, records Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. So John is, and and the Gospel of John is full of what we would call these I am statements of Jesus, right? I don't have time to list them all, but Jesus refers to himself in divine language and exclusive language that only he and this, the relationship that only he and God the Father would share. So Jesus knew that it was this claim that really put him at odds with the religious leaders. This claim of divine authority, this claim of this exclusive relationship with the Father. He and I are one. You can see John chapter 10 for that again. That's one of the reasons that the religious leaders largely rejected Jesus. A few, Nicodemus, would follow Jesus, but he was largely rejected by the religious leaders. And the last thing that we see, so how does God make himself known? Well, he shares his authority with his son. He has this exclusive relationship with the son. Nobody knows God like Jesus. Nobody knows the father like Jesus. And lastly, Jesus says, no one knows the father except the son and those whom the son chooses to reveal him to. So here we see that Jesus is offering an exclusive relationship. That's the third C uh, under point two, Jesus offers an exclusive relation, re, excuse me, an exclusive re, revelation to those who would follow him. No one knows the Father like the Son, and no one knows the Son like the Father. So we see the word revealed, apocalypto, used here again. So what is this exclusive thing that Jesus is now revealing? Well, Jesus says, I'm revealing to you the Father. 
I'm revealing to you God himself. Jesus is the revelation of the Father. No one knows the Father like the Son. No one knows the Son like the Father and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him to. So to see Jesus is to see the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So one of the primary works of the Son, one of the primary works of Jesus throughout his ministry is to reveal God to us. Jesus over and over again would say, if you want to know the Father, then know me. He even rebuked his disciples to show us the Father. I think it was Philip that said it. Just show us the Father, Jesus. And he was like, Philip, have you not? Have you been with me all this time and you still don't know? I and the Father are one. To see me is to see the Father. Even today, through the work of the Holy Spirit, Christ is making known to us the work of the Father. He's making known to us the heart of God. So to go back to our question, how does God make himself known Well, he makes himself known through his Son, his Word, and his Spirit. Jesus says that this is an exclusive relationship given to those whom he chooses, to those who follow him. Who does he choose? Well, in context of this passage, those whom Jesus chose to reveal the Father to are those infants who believed in his Word. Their believing in the revelation is connected to the calling of Jesus. God's calling a people to himself and a person's responsibility to believe work together to bring about salvation. So this is really God's mercy on display here. We cannot know God apart from the work of Christ in making him known. We cannot know God apart from the work of Christ making God known. So what, but what is it about the Father that Jesus wants us to know and that he wants us to experience? Well, what we are being called to God through Christ for Jesus answers by revealing his heart, the very heart of God. This is a unique passage. When you look at verses 28 through 30, these last three verses are very unique in Scripture. There's a lot of things Jesus did. And if you were to ask somebody not just who Jesus was, you would get a lot of answers for that. Well, he was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. If you ask Christians who Jesus was, that is. If you ask the world who Jesus was, you get a lot of different answers. But if you ask the believers... True believers who Jesus is, you'll get a lot of correct responses. He was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. He was the king in the line of David. He was Abraham's seed. All those things are are true about Jesus. But if you were to ask, well, what was he like? What was Jesus like? What was his heart? What was his character? Who was he? Then you get a few glimpses in Scripture. You get a lot of glimpses in what Jesus does. You can see his heart, his compassion, his mercy, his grace. There's really only one place, uh, well, maybe a few others, but one place in particular where Jesus says, this is what my heart is like. This is who I am at my core. And it's this passage here, verses 28 through 30. So what we see here, this is your third and final blank, but you still have to listen. We've got 15 minutes left. I'm giving you your last blank now, but you still got to finish fish and hang out with me here, okay? The son's invitation to the weary. The son's invitation to the weary. So verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For here's what Jesus says his heart is like. I am gentle and I am lowly. I'm gentle and I'm lowly. And we'll break those words down here in a second. So Jesus is building up here. He's praising God for his work of redemption, of revealing these truths 
to the most unlikely people. He is declaring that he has this unique authority and this unique relationship and this unique message from God to deliver to people that he is God, that he knows that he's the Son, the divine Son, the second member of the Trinity. And then he says, here's who I am. Come to me because this is who I am, because this is the authority that I've been given, because I've been given the task of revealing to you who the Father is. Come to me and I'm going to show you. Here's what, here's what God is like. Here's what I'm like. So here we have this beautiful invitation of Jesus. He says, come to me. And he declares that he alone can reveal the Father. And then he invites the weary to experience God, to experience him. So who is he specifically inviting here? Well, he's inviting all who labor and are heavy laden, right? Anybody who's broken down by this world, anybody who is burdened, who's weary, that's who Jesus calls out to. So this, the, the, it conveys the idea of those who are exhausted, those who have toiled with burdens, those who are grieving, mourning, those who, some are just simply tired. So what is so burdened the people? Why are they so tired? Well, I think there could be a lot of answers to that question. What could burden somebody down? I mean, there's probably, if ask each of you, there's, each of you would have a different answer as to why this, this world is a burdensome, toilsome world to live in. But first, when you, when you look at the context of this passage, it seems that the, the religious burden of legalism is one of the things making the people weary, right? Because it's the wise and it's the learned who have rejected the message of the Messiah. And it's the wise and the learned who put this burden of the law upon people. They're oppressed by the rules, by these regulations placed on them by scribes and Pharisees and other religious leaders. To them, Jesus was saying, I can give you rest. I offer you rest. The word in the Greek, when you think about the word rest, it's an interesting word in the Greek. Uh, it's a compound word. It's a small word in our language, four letters. But in the Greek, it's a compound word. It combines the word um, ana, A-N-A, which means into, between, or amidst. It's a preposition. Um, with the word pao, meaning to cease, to get released from, or to desist. So when you put those together, what you get is this compound word in the Greek that means to cease from movement or labor, to give rest, or to refresh. Right? So in effect, Jesus was speaking to those burdened down by life, speaking to people who were burdened down by legalism, um, by unnecessary laws given to them by scribes and Pharisees. They were bound up in this crushing guilt of trying to earn salvation, of trying to earn the affection of God through all these, these regulations. And Jesus said to them, Come to me, and I will bring you into the midst of rest. Come to me, and I will cause your striving and your toil to cease. Come to me and I will bring release from this, this burden that you've been carrying. And when you think about the concept of rest in all the Bible, I mean, I could, we could do a whole series over what rest means in the Bible, but the concept of rest is found all throughout Scripture. All right, as a matter of fact, it goes all the way back to creation itself, doesn't it? It was built into the fabric of creation. God created for six days... And on the seventh day, he rested. Not because he needed rest, not because he was tired, but because his work was finished. His work of creation was done. It was complete, and he established a pattern for the first man and the first woman and for everyone that would come after them. He knew that man would fall. He knew man would need rest. 
Isn't that just like God to establish something in creation before sin happened because He knew what would happen and He knew we would need rest? Then, if you fast forward a little bit after God established this pattern of rest in creation, Exodus 20, He codifies rest in law, right? God gives one of the Ten Commandments is to honor the Sabbath. So He takes this concept of rest that He built into the fabric of creation and He codifies it in His law. He gives it to Moses, Exodus 20. And here we get the Hebrew word that we translate as Sabbath is a Hebrew word, Shabbat, which is drawn from a word similar to the Greek word anapao, which also means to cease, desist, or to rest. So what Jesus is communicating to the people here in Matthew 11 is the same thing God was trying to communicate to the people in creation and in Exodus 20, that God is a God who offers rest. The people of Israel were commanded to observe the day of Shabbat, to rest, to cease work, desist from labor. Put your toils down for a day, put them down. And Jesus called himself the Lord of the Sabbath in the very next chapter, as a matter of fact. Matthew chapter 12, the very first few verses, he calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Interesting title, one of the things that Jesus calls himself. And then we get to verse 29. Here in this passage, our passage, Matthew eleven twenty nine, And it's a beautiful passage. And we find that the reason Jesus can offer rest to the weary is because he has a heart for them. Right? He delights in easing the burdens of his people. Jesus asked his followers, take, take this yoke, take a yoke upon yourself. Which doesn't sound very um, much like easing a burden. It sounds like adding a burden when you think about what a yoke is. But he says, take my yoke on you. Right? Take my yoke on on you, and we know if, if I'm not an agricultural guy, I've never farmed anything in my life. I've planted a few jalapeno plants, and that's about it, all I've ever done. But um, it, I, I, I'm, my understanding upon looking this up was that a yoke was a wooden frame that usually joined two animals together for the purpose of pulling a heavy load. And we'll discuss the yoke more here in a bit, but for now, understand that what Jesus is asking is that his followers were to yoke themselves to him. He's asking them to bind themselves to him. He speaks from his heart here. He says he's gentle. He says he's lowly. And this is the opposite of the harsh and the prideful burden the religious leaders of the day had laid upon the people. So since Jesus is giving us a glimpse of his heart here, I think we ought to observe more closely the two words that he uses to refer to himself. Gentle and lowly, gentle and lowly. So the word, the Greek word for gentle is an adjective. It appears in three other, excuse me, two other places in the New Testament other than here. The King James translation actually translates the word gentle as meek. Um, it means mildness of, of disposition. It means gentle of spirit or meekness. It's found here and um, it's also found in Matthew 5, 5 in the, what we would call the Beatitudes. It's found in Matthew 21, 5, and in 1 Peter 3, 4. Peter uses this word to instruct believing wives on how to deal with their unbelieving husbands, to be gentle with them. And two of these four uses of the word gentle in the, in the New Testament, it's directly dealing with Jesus' own character, with his own heart, who he reveals himself to be. So Jesus reveals himself as gentle, as mild of disposition, gentle of spirit, 
This is towards his people, by the way. We all know Jesus has another side because we've read the book of Revelation, I'm assuming. So we know that Jesus has another side. But towards his people, he reveals himself as gentle. Towards those who would yoke up with him, he reveals himself as gentle. <clears throat> and he also reveals himself as lowly. This is also an adjective in the Greek, and it appears eight times in the New Testament. The King James translates the word as humble <clears throat> or cast down. And it means, it, it's interesting, it means not rising from the ground. Low of degree or to be brought low with grief, to be humble. So this is what Jesus reveals about his own heart towards his people. <clears throat> Weary sinners who are longing for rest. And if you notice that Jesus isn't primarily offering rest from physical toil, from physical labor, or just physical suffering in general... What he is offering to them is rest for their souls, right? Come to me, learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So this goes back. So I want to revisit the concept of Sabbath, of rest, of Shabbat again. So this goes back to Jesus saying he was Lord of the Sabbath in Matthew 12. So the Sabbath of the Old Testament was just a shadow of the real Sabbath, right? Everything in the Old Testament is a shadow that Jesus fulfilled in reality, right? The atonement system of the Old Testament, <clears throat> he fulfilled the law, um, he fulfilled the Sabbath. He was Lord of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath in the Old Testament was a shadow of the real Sabbath that Jesus was offering, right? Our observing of a day of Shabbat, for those who don't observe a day of rest, we, we should, um, but an observing of a day of Shabbat, a day of rest in this world, is a picture of the real Shabbat or the real rest of our souls that we desperately need. Every time that we find ourselves needing rest, just rest from the world, right? Rest from the burden of the world, rest from mourning the sin of the world, rest, all these, I mean, we, there's a million things that we could need rest from. So every time that we take a break, and every time we've, we follow this command of God to rest, what we're doing in one way is reminding ourselves that really we live in a world where we can't find true rest, right? We need somebody to give that to us, something that we don't have that only Jesus offers, right? If in the Old Testament God said that you should honor the Sabbath, that you should rest, and Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest then what Jesus offers is the true Shabbat, the true rest. If the Old Testament was the shadow, then Jesus is the real thing. So come to him, all who are weary, all who are heavy burdened, and your soul will find rest in him. True rest. John MacArthur says that the rest Jesus is talking about here is a permanent respite in the grace of God completely apart from works. So what Jesus offers is of all the toil and striving what you need the most, he says, what you need is rest for your souls. We need to have the burden of sin lifted. We need to have the burden of the law lifted. We need the burden of the wrath of God lifted. And Jesus does all of that. We cannot bear the weight of our own sin. We cannot bear the weight of our own guilt and our own shame. And that's why Christ says, yoke up to him. All right? Because when you do that, you find out that by yoking up to him, he does not add a burden, but he lightens your burden. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. One author says that his yoke is an unyoke, right? He eases your burden. He takes the burden upon himself. Jesus says, yoke up with me, 
and he's going to carry the load. I, I couldn't help when I, I thought about this, um, when I read this passage, I was thinking about, I, I, um, I read a lot. I hope you all do. I mean, I love to read all kinds of things. And I'm, I'm going to ask this question, but it always saddens my heart how many of y'all never read or even were made to read this book as a kid. So as an adult, if you're in here, it's a kid's book, but go read it anyway. But I always think about this book. It was written by C.S. Lewis. And the most popular book that C.S. Lewis wrote was, of course, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. How many of y'all have read that one? Please tell me. Somebody has read that one in here. Okay. So it's the Chronicles of Narnia series, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, but there is a, there's kind of a, um, a book called The Magician's Nephew in this series. So C.S. Lewis wrote seven books that chronicle the land of Narnia, right? Um, it's really a children's book, but it's a classic. And what's, it's all, it, The Magician's Nephew is often overlooked because it's overshadowed by the popularity of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, but it was written later in the series, but it's a prequel that actually details events that happened prior to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that led up to the creation of this fantasy realm of Narnia. And there's a young boy uh, who was drawn in by the charm of a witch who unknowingly brought her into this realm of Narnia that had just been newly created, and he unleashed her unknowingly. and She brought evil to this newly created land. And if you've read the series, you know that she's the white witch in the line, the witch in the wardrobe. She's the witch in the line, the witch in the wardrobe. And great evil is going to come from her. She's going to do a lot of bad things. Hundreds of years later, uh, she's going to place a curse on the land. But in, in The Magician's Nephew, we are introduced to this character named Aslan, this benevolent lion, this creator of all Narnia. He foresees the evil intentions of the witch. He knows great harm is going to come from her. And in this moment, he says, evil will come of that evil, of releasing her into the world. But that's still a long way off. I will see to it that the worst falls upon myself. And if you fast forward in the events, all the way up to the events of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know that in order to spare the life of a young boy who was a traitor, Edmund, Aslan the Lion laid down his own life in his place in Narnia. Animals could talk. Sorry to spoil that for you all who haven't read the books yet. Is the Lion who can talk. Aslan laid down his life for this young boy. But he came back to life again the next morning. He bore the worst of Edmund's punishment. Not on, and not only that... Um, but he spared all Narnia, right? All of Narnia was saved by this act, this one act of the lion. So C.S. Lewis was a Christian, and Aslan was a character um, that was kind of a mere imperfection, uh, imperfect re reflection of Jesus. But God knew the first man, Adam, would fall into sin. He foresaw the great evil that that would bring upon the world that would come from that one sin that Adam did. He foresaw the toil and the burden that it would place on us as people, on humanity. And he knew the sin debt would be too much for man to carry on his own. He knew he wouldn't be able to do it, that we would buckle under the load of our own sin. So he sent Jesus, gentle and lowly, to bear the worst of it. So to yoke up with Christ is to see the burden of your sin carried by one, really the only one, who can withstand the load. So in yoking up with Christ, we find true rest for our souls. We find the fulfillment of God's Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, so He can offer rest. If He's the Lord of rest, He can offer us rest and mean it. So that's why He says, Come to Him, all who are weary and burdened, and He can give you rest. So let's pray tonight. Thank you all for being here. 
Lord, we thank you that you're a God who's gentle and lowly and merciful towards us as sinners. Lord, we thank you that you've called us to yoke up with, with you, and in doing so, you, you take the burden of our sin. You place it upon yourself, and you carry it, Father. And we just, we just thank you for doing that. Thank you for offering us rest, true rest, that can only be found in you. Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified uh, tonight as we praise you um, for your work of redemption, for your work of revealing yourself to us so that we might know you, that we might follow you, and that in you we might find rest uh, in this, in this weary and, and tiresome world. Lord, we thank you for who you are, for what you do. We praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all for being here tonight. Hope you have a blessed rest of the week.